This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. People are used to getting their news from a public service paid for by taxpayers, such as RNZ, or getting it as a customer of a commercial news organisation, either by paying for it directly, like buying a daily paper, or consuming news offered for free that's paid for by advertising. But is news as a social enterprise an idea whose time has now come? One South Island online outfit wants to be the first to get its local audience to take control and ownership. Also, the Canterbury Panther, big cats reportedly roaming the South Island countryside, and mysterious moose sightings in Fiordland. All of these have been reported by serious news outlets this past month. So things like faeces, things like hair, it doesn't stick around for very long, so it's very difficult to find any evidence. It all gets people watching and clicking, but do strange animal sightings really stack up as news stories? But first... Mixed messages from the opposition on shooting the media messenger. This is an RNZ podcast. Stephen, your take on Yeah, well, I mean, I know very little, unlike Bridget, about the inner workings of the National Party, but if I'd put money on it, I would have assumed he would have gone for sure. Well, that's Stephen Mills, who works for the Labour Party's preferred pollsters, UMR, and is a regular left-leaning pundit on the weekly politics slot on RNZ National's 9 to noon. So it's no surprise then that he's no fan of the National Party or its president, but on last Monday's session on 9 to noon with Catherine Ryan, he was echoing what many other pundits and political journalists had been saying about Peter Goodfellow and the run-up to the National Party's AGM last weekend. Given the dire election campaign and result... He wasn't likely to be picked again as National Party president. But, as it turned out, he was re-elected, in spite of a rather bitter speech to the AGM in which, among other things, he unloaded on the news media. Prior to COVID-19, he said National had been preparing for a battle of ideas, but he told the delegates that the campaign descended into what he called a race of celebrity leadership via the media. Reason debate on contentious issues became almost treasonous, said Peter Goodfellow, and he reckoned those daily COVID-19 broadcasts became televangelistic, like gospel to the masses. And then there was more. Democracy for a period of time gave way to a form of temporary tyranny. No one should fear death threats or violence for voicing an opinion, no matter how much you disagree. But that was the reality in a Jacinda mania world, and I'm sure you felt that too throughout the year. I certainly did. Now, Peter Goodfellow was far from the first person to point out that the Prime Minister's presence on those COVID-19 briefings almost every day would be a political advantage for her party so close to an election. Government by press conference, as it became known. But the exposure was not entirely risk-free. Jacinda Ardern and other senior ministers also had to field questions from journalists competing for a good story, and often those were stories about shortcomings in the COVID-19 response. And all of that was broadcast live to the nation, as well as the stuff Peter Goodfellow found televangelistic. There are not too many tyrannies around the world where the leader gets that sort of scrutiny live on the air. Come to think of it, neither do many televangelists. But as it happened, the journalists who challenged the Prime Minister, other ministers and their officials in those briefings also copped quite severe personal abuse online of the same type that Peter Goodfellow was complaining about there. But clearly there was no sense of solidarity with the media on that. Ignoring that old pre-digital dictum about not buying a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel, the National Party president turned on the media big time. 
He said reporters actively lined up against his party and held it to a higher standard than the Labour-led government. And he claimed that the media generated opinion dressed as fact in his newsfeed, though, as political critics of the media often do, he didn't say exactly where they came from. So how did the media then respond to this harsh but non-specific slapdown? Well, not well. The fact that Goodfellow came out and did possibly the most ill-timed speech he could have possibly have done after what John Key said to him and was greeted by thunderous silence by all the delegates showed to me that Goodfellow and a whole lot of the ancient over 55-year-olds in that party have not been listening to a man who actually knows his politics. That was News Talk ZB's Andrew Dickens on the weekend political panel show on ZB last Sunday. Now, while he claimed that Peter Goodfellow's spray at the media was greeted at the AGM with thunderous silence, the next day, Nine to Noon's host Catherine Ryan reckoned the media usually have about the same level of enthusiasm for National's AGMs. They would normally be regarded as dull as dishwater, but after a hammering like this election, what should happen and did it happen? I think absolutely what should happen did happen. They had a packed out, um, you know, conference or AGM and packed out sort of functions around it. And as it happens, Bridget Morton, the right-leaning counterweight on the 9 to noon politics slot last Monday, was actually at National's AGM last weekend. And she told Catherine Ryan that in spite of all the media headlines about blame games and leaders under pressure for underperformance in the election, the vibe was actually pretty good. I think what I was really pleased by, and actually quite pleasantly surprised by, about how constructive it was. And then Brigitte Morton went on to make another point. And, you know, for the most part, the media is there for a very small part of the AGM, and AGMs aren't really there for the media anyway. So I think it was a member-led conference that delivered what it was meant to. Writing on his own website, Politic, Richard Harmon, who was also there at the AGM, said the National Party itself didn't make it a media-friendly event, a bit like their president. And Peter Goodfellow himself didn't speak to media at all during the Saturday, and the party kept the media away from the presidential election process, he said, and they didn't even let journalists see the announcement of the results or photograph any of the candidates. But the National Party did put on the stage a former election winner and his advice about how to win the next one. Even if you somehow think you're doing the party good, you're wrong and you won't. It's as simple as that. Disunity will be reported as disunity because that's exactly what it is. Former Prime Minister John Key saying that the National Party only had itself to blame there was widely reported as contradicting Peter Goodfellow blaming the media. But John Key was also saying that the media were out to get his party, indeed any party, that looks divided. The one thing the media wants to report over the next three years is disunity. It's a lot more interesting for a political reporter to report on that than our policy papers. And that would ring true for former National Party leader Simon Bridges, who was planning a series of eight detailed policy announcements when he was the leader. But the ones he released before he got rolled last July yielded far fewer stories in the media than the ones about him being a dead man walking, based mostly on the results of opinion polls that the media themselves had actually paid for. And in his AGM address, John Key was also on the same page as Peter Goodfellow about the government getting most of the oxygen of media publicity. They have the advantages that incumbency and attention gives them. That's what we're up against as we win to fight back those voters. Now there, John Key meant to say they had to win back the voters, not fight them. But his big message to the National Party faithful was not to leak damaging info to the media. 
So here is my very simple advice to those who like to leak to the media. If you can't quit your leaking, here's a clue, quit the party. I can tell you, even if you somehow think you're doing the party good, you're wrong and you won't. It's as simple as that. Though John Key wasn't only warning about loose lips around reporters. Every time that nice Uber driver asks you what you really think of Judith or what you really think of National, it's the same answer we give privately. We're 100% behind this party winning the 2023 election. That's our answer. Now there, John Key meant to say publicly when he said privately, and you don't get much more public than talking to Susie Ferguson on RNZ's Morning Report. Last Monday, when she asked John Key if Peter Goodfellow was right to cite the media as a reason for the party's poor election night showing, he made it clear he wasn't. So I think, look, it's always, in life it's always easy to blame the media and um, have a perspective that they are biased or they you know, will only report one thing or they're against you and all of those kinds of things. But the reality is that um, uh, largely that's not correct. And, and, and even, if it, even if it is, if you don't have the sorts of stories you don't want reported, then, then they will be forced to report the things you want them to report. Now, John Key was, of course, the last Prime Minister to enjoy Jacinda Ardern levels of popularity in the media's public opinion polls. And although no one called it John Key mania at the time, critics did complain that he enjoyed an enduring political honeymoon with the media. And for the last seven out of John Key's eight years in the top job, the National Party president was Peter Goodfellow. And Media Watch couldn't find anything on the record from him at the time as having any concerns about media bias. More people in Queenstown and Wanaka are struggling to find affordable housing, even though rents are starting to come down. The waiting list at the local Community Housing Trust, a public housing provider, began to reduce a year ago, but has grown again during the COVID-19 pandemic. That was RNZ News at 8 last Wednesday morning when RNZ's Otago Southland reporter Timothy Brown reported that even in one of the most prosperous parts of the country, the crisis of affordable housing has been amplified by the disruption caused by COVID-19. But Timothy Brown went on to mention there had been some success in building new homes there. The Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust has secured 50 high-density apartments in Frankton and construction is underway on six homes in Wanaka. Dozens more sections are planned in Lake Hayes and Arrowtown, which Julie Scott says will bring some relief to the trust's waiting list. And the work of the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust would have been fairly familiar to readers of the online news service that's dedicated to news about Queenstown, Wanaka and the Southern Lakes region, called Crux, and Crux is also governed by a trust, the Southern Media Community Trust, which was formed for the purpose of getting Crux going. And it's headed by veteran journalist Peter Newport, who's worked for the BBC in the UK, TV News in Australia, and here at TV3, RNZ and others. Now, when it launched online in mid-2018, Peter Newport told MediaWatch he set up Crux because the Southern Lakes region risked becoming a digital backwater starved of good journalism. 
A year later, Crux was getting over 60,000 page views a month, and local issues such as Queenstown Airport, a new hospital, and local governance and water quality were all getting frequent coverage on the site, and sometimes Crux was getting pushback from those local outfits that didn't really enjoy the added scrutiny. And some of Crux's stories about tourism industry problems and a maternity care crisis in the region were also picked up by the national news media. Crux also received public funding from New Zealand On Air for three video series about life in the area, and housing, which is now blowing up as a major social and political issue nationwide, is the subject of House Talk, the most in-depth video series yet by Crux, co-produced with RNZ. This is a 10-part series where we talk to the people who are involved in the development of the buildings we live, work and play in here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I don't give a toss about anybody's risk. The only way to achieve your outcome with the RMA is to be a bully. Now, overseas, financial trusts have backed some significant news media companies, but Crux is a first for New Zealand media. So far, it's all been done also without advertising or commercial sponsorship, which other digital news startups have at the core of their business models here. But back when it launched in 2018, Peter Newport also told MediaWatch he didn't want Crux to depend on just a handful of deep-pocketed donors in the long term. Our model, incidentally, is that we think we eventually will be owned by the community that will become so valuable, um, floated, if you like, to the community. Crux and its backers are now pressing ahead with that plan for community ownership, turning its audience into stakeholders, and that the outlet itself should become a kind of social enterprise. And in a couple of years, the goal is to have hundreds or even thousands of local people as stakeholders by investing small sums in Crux themselves. Well, another interested party in all this is Nathan Hethington, a US-born writer and publisher who now lives in Albert Town near Wanaka. He also publishes a quarterly magazine for and about the Southern Mountains called 1964, which was named after the year that Mount Aspiring National Park was founded. In the past, he worked for a newspaper publisher called Black Press, based in Canada, and advises publishers on digital transition in New Zealand and elsewhere. So does he think community ownership could really work for crux? I absolutely think it'll work. I think we come from Canada where the co-op model, we call it a co-op model. It's a little bit more mainstream where we have large retail stores there where when you shop there, you own the retail store. This to me fits it perfectly. I subscribe, so I own a share in the business that provides my community news. But most people just do it as a customer, right? And they're either paying for it in terms of paying a cover price for something or subscribing, or they're paying with their time to watch something that's filled with advertising. This is that times two. So you're subscribing because you want to, and side benefit, you now own the company that you just want to consume from. So to me, I think it's a no-brainer. And there's people that are doing it very successfully. I was looking at transitioning a lot of newspapers in Canada well, over 100, into a similar type model. And one of the ideas was uh, if, if we are have a high-quality product and we do have a lot of eyeballs, advertisers are going to be interested. I think the job is to get high-quality editorial out, and then you have other people who do their job, which is to make sure the thing functions properly, make sure everybody gets paid. And that's it. And I think it would run very smoothly. But as a publisher, what about the notion of having suddenly shareholders that might want to say, that might want to change the direction of the company, if you think you know what's good for it, that's a bit of a nightmare, isn't I it? I think you can do it with the proper governance. And I'm not an expert in that, but I think you have to have an editorial board. The owners are not directly interacting with the reporters, though. What difference does it make if you're not trying to make a profit to return to a shareholder? I think it's huge. It lowers the bar. If I, I mean, you're saying we have to break even. 
Yeah, I think it's very feasible. I think everybody is starting to realize how much we need real investigative journalism, not just here, but around the world in local communities. Local communities need high-quality local journalism to function properly. Otherwise, corruption creeps in. So, I mean, you publish a publication here, a magazine. Do you yep. think... You think they're ready to make that jump and actually become stakeholders, shareholders in their own news outlet for their own area? I think so, but I think it's simpler than that. Fifty, hundred bucks a year to subscribe to this organization that keeps democracy flowing in my town. Oh, and by the way, that means I own it. So it's just like a benefit at the end. But the step one is you have to have the value, and everybody recognizes the value. Now, if you have a press release rag, no, I'm not going to pay you a dime for it. But if you're helping my community stay healthy, yeah. I'll subscribe. That was Nathan Hetherington, a former newspaper executive in Canada who's now living in Albert Town near Wanaka. But is news media really suited to being a social enterprise? Well, advising Crux on the project is Christchurch-based lawyer Stephen Moe from the law firm Parry Field, who wrote the book on this, Social Enterprise in New Zealand. There's many, many social enterprises. In fact, there's probably thousands of them throughout the country. And these are often purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to do business while also being sustainable. There's multiple examples from textile um, manufacturers or clothing manufacturers, like Little Yellowbird, um, through to Whale Watch, which is also a a purpose-driven enterprise. In Kaikoura. In Kaikoura, yeah, exactly. We see it in other outlets as well, like the spin-off, putting money in to support what's being done. Yeah, become Uh, become a member, effectively. Yep, And, and I think to answer your question, I always like to come back to the simplicity. Keep it simple. Companies are well understood. You have shareholders, you have directors, you have dividends that flow back to shareholders. That can all be used within a social enterprise context or a purpose-driven company context. Add in some mission and some purpose. So there's actually um, a vision set for that company. You actually articulate what's our mission, what's our purpose, how will we report on what we say we're going to do. That makes it also more complicated, doesn't it? Particularly when you consider what kind of business the news media is. Uh, if you've got a lot of, say, community stakeholders, as Crux wants to have, uh, and they want to have a say, doesn't that make it really complicated? Because, uh, you know, news media, not really a democracy when it comes down to it. Well, I like to take the word you use of complicated and, and actually flip it on its head. Because all of a sudden, you have ambassadors out there who actually care about what they've invested in. But if and, you've got to make tough they've... decisions, though, or, I mean, if you have to change direction, sell part of the business to stay afloat, or lay off workers because we're not getting enough to pay them, don't these decisions get much more complicated if you have a spread out range of owners? But again, I would flip that on its head and say this is a really positive thing because we're actually involving more stakeholders within decisions that get made. That was lawyer Stephen Moe from the Christchurch-based law firm Parry Field. And while he sounds keen to back community ownership of the Queenstown-based news outlet Crux, how could it actually be done? Peter Newport is the editor and founder of Crux. Well, here in Queenstown, we've seen a mass exodus of media. It's a very expensive place to keep a journalist. So we've seen a lot of media outlets closing newspapers and taking journalists out of here. And yet, at the same time, this community's changing. You know, we're seeing massive change in Queenstown, Wanaka and Cromwell. So the gap that we tried to fill was really around helping the community understand these forces that were changing. And I think the gap that we're meeting is that we're part of that change 
We're not simply observing it from a distance. Well, you mentioned those people from all around the world um, that were here. Some of them you've been approaching, effectively putting your proposition to them. So stage one of this project of yours is to get a few core backers, and some of them, I'm guessing, will be not just local people, but these people from overseas who have chosen this as a place to live. Wouldn't it be simpler just to have a few core, deep-pocketed backers to uh, back a digital news outlet like this that they themselves would be interested in rather than try and recruit uh, backers and owners from the whole community? It would be much easier. But we've seen all over the world wealthy people, especially in the States, billionaires in the States, they love buying media outlets. And they don't love buying media outlets just for the fun of it or as a hobby. Those media outlets are very powerful. Even Crux in its own small way is powerful. And it just seems to me, even though it might be easier, fundamentally wrong to have a media outlet that's owned by a small number of people. I really do feel strongly that if local media is going to survive and thrive, we have to be the voice of the people. And we have to therefore be owned by all the people. Mm, but this, there's fish hooks in this, isn't there? Because one of the parts of the proposal is a community editorial advisory board. So if you've got stakeholders who are members of the community, I mean, potentially hundreds of people, this is your goal, do you really want to have a community-driven editorial board uh, or advisory board sitting over you determining the direction? You'd want the you'd want to have the power uh, and the autonomy to be able to take it in the direction that you believe it should go? It's a safety valve. And where I think I and the journalists working for Crux do need some future guidance is on tone. Because in a small town, there's no positive thing about being outraged and angry every day. You've got to have some good news. You've also got to see the merit in business, that business can be good. So we need to be in a position to reward and recognise good business and good progress. And sometimes, I think, as journalists, we do tend to get a little bit on the, the problem side of the balance sheet instead of the good news. But, but, but if you had a, an editorial advisory board saying, Peter, lately, you've been a bit negative, you know, these, these, the tone of your stories, you would hate that, wouldn't you? I don't know. I think it's important. Uh, if, if the community wants us to be more of a mix between good and bad, then I have to listen to the community. The idea that we only have one client, and that is the community, is a little bit difficult to argue with. And that's what we've achieved so far. The way we do it at the moment without a big advisory board is we do lots of reader surveys. So the idea of having an editorial advisory board is not only to keep the tone right, but to make sure that we continue to accurately reflect the views of the community. So the really hard part, finance-wise, of what you're doing here is trying to expand like this and attract uh, revenue, but but without advertising. And you said, um, the uh, especially in the communities of Queenstown, Wanaka and Cromwell, uh, it compromises journalistic integrity and independence. You can't bite the hand that feeds you. But what is it specific to this location and those places that you mentioned there by name that's any different to any other media outlet that takes advertising for from local businesses for a local readership? A national media outlet can and does juggle many hundreds of different advertisers. If we're in a situation where locally we might only have five outfits that are the major sources of money for advertising, if one is the council, if one is the airport, and the other three are major tourism companies, I think it makes it very hard to report independently on those five entities if they're all paying you money. It's hard to be a tough journalist in a tough town and still have the money coming in from advertisers. 
uh, if your money's coming in from tourism companies, in simple language, it's very hard to be tough on the same tourism companies. But what you're trying to do here is something that really hasn't been done before. And how confident are you really that within a couple of years you could have, I mean, hundreds as your goal, isn't it? Hundreds of people who live in this area actually paying uh, to be members and owners of, of this new outlet? I'm very confident because, of course, it replaces uh, the need for high subscription rates. It replaces the need for big paywalls. I think paywalls are going to be really tricky for local journalism. And one of the things that we've discovered is that people always ask the fundamental question, what's in it for me? And that's why this is going to be successful, because what's in it for a resident is the ability to come to us as journalists and have us make a difference. Because everybody has something to complain about. So everybody has a desire to see things fixed. If we can provide that service as journalists, then absolutely we can persuade people to become shareholders. But we're not that naive that we think people are just going to write us a cheque. And one of the really clever ideas that's come out is that by partnering with business, which is part of our growth, we can have a voucher scheme. So instead of spending valuable dollars on paying people cash dividends, we can pay dividends through supermarket vouchers and petrol vouchers and restaurant vouchers. It's not sort of some wide-eyed utopian idea of a media that's... um, happily trucking along without rewarding its shareholders. Well, one of the goals also in your, your pitch to this stage one of people to back the, the project that far was that you want to show, demonstrate to government that this is a robust outlet that will be sustainable because, as you've mentioned, New Zealand on Air funds some of your video projects and right now all this is in play. The government's talking about now $25 million a year for three years as a contestable fund for journalism that could be at-risk journalism, even regional journalism. Are you eyeing that up and thinking, aha, this is an opportunity? Uh, yes, absolutely. We have our eyes on some of that money. But also, quite rightly, they don't like risking taxpayer money on something that's not well run, that may not be totally professional, that may not be funded well enough to last 10 years. And rather than wait for government to say, we'll give you money if you meet these conditions, our approach is to anticipate what those likely conditions are. So good governance, good local funding, good editorial standards. These are all things that I think government will be ticking boxes with before they give money to regional journalism. But this is long-term stuff that you're talking about here. It's a long-term picture. But you want to get started on this right now. So the documentation that's gone out talks about you know, trying to hire people before the summer holidays, for example, to get this stuff in place. But doesn't it all fall down a bit if the high-net individuals that you've been pitching the idea to don't come on board in that initial stage, providing the sort of $300,000 that you want to propel this into the stage two and, and then get it into the community ownership? Well, the good news is that we're actually quite well advanced into this program. It's not really so much the beginning as the closing stages. When we've been talking to the community about funding for two and a half years, and that conversation has taken different paths. Should we be a trust? Should we be a trading trust? Should we be a charitable trust that just educates journalists with a limited liability company attached? So already we've come very close, if not actually past our minimum goal. And there are journalists out there who are sick of writing media releases and calling it news. It's never easy raising money. But we've had two and a half years to prove ourselves. I think we've achieved a level of success that we have good reason to be proud of. 
That was Peter Newport, the founder and editor of the news outlet Crux, dedicated to news and issues from the Southern Lakes region. And you can find out more about its proposed transition to community ownership at the news site itself, crux.org.nz. In just the past month, a panther, possibly on the loose in Canterbury, mysterious moose supposedly sighted in Fiordland, and big cats roaming rurally in the South Island have all been reported by serious news outlets. All that makes for novelty news that's pretty good for clicks and engagement, but are those stories really news? Hayden Donnell takes a look. My first thought was, I didn't know there was panthers in, uh, <laughs> in New Zealand, um, and I just thought it must have been... Uh, a more common thing. So, um, and then you know, obviously after we started googling it, and it, yeah, it sort of realised was a bit more rare than than we first thought. So then we're a bit more in shock. That's mountain biker Mark Orr talking to Checkpoint's Lisa Owen in late October about spotting what he believed to be a black panther on a trail near Hanmer Springs. Orr's sighting of the supposed South Island panther is part of a rich tradition. The fabled big cat has allegedly been spotted everywhere from Marlborough to Southland. Checkpoint gave Orr four more minutes to explain his recent encounter with the big cat. It's possible, though, that they should have checked in with a panther expert before going to air. Media Watch has carried out its own independent investigation into Orr's claims, and we can reveal that he may not actually have picked out an apex predator in the woods near Hanmer. This is what wildlife photographer Rob Seustead had to say when asked to examine the images. Kia ora, Rob. G'day, mate. How are you? Is that a panther? No. What is it? Not even close. It's a baby goat. What's your evidence? Oh, just its body form and the depth of its body, how its back legs are very stocky, its front less so. It's not a sleek animal. It's very chunky. Everything I see there is a, is a juvenile goat. No doubt about it. Maybe Orr's story wasn't credible. It's even possible panthers aren't actually roaming the rural South Island. Even so, there remains a deep vein of stories for journalists to mine about potentially mythical New Zealand animals. Just look at the oeuvre of Stuff reporter Charlie Mitchell. During the general election campaign, he wrote the definitive report on the rise of conspiracy-adjacent politician Billy Takahika Jr., but when he's not debunking conspiracies, Mitchell is often obsessing about another issue which some have dismissed as conspiracy adjacent. He's deeply wedded to the idea that moose are roaming Fiordland National Park and has already published a lengthy two-part investigation into the subject. While some media organisations wouldn't tolerate their reporters delving into the potentially cryptid, Stuff has supported Mitchell's regular drives for more moose content. This is what Stuff editor Patrick Crudson had to say. Stuff's national correspondents have the freedom to follow their muse, whether moose-related or otherwise. Charlie's not one to run with the herd, and we value his creativity, independence, droll sense of humour, and the deep research he brings to all his work. But are the reports of moose roaming the South Island more credible than Marcor's panther footage? Or is one of our top reporters on conspiracies actually a conspiracy theorist himself? I called Charlie Mitchell to ask whether the moose is out there. Kia ora, Charlie, and welcome to Media Watch. Thank you. What is the evidence that moose exist in Fiordland? We know that moose were put in Fiordland back in about 1910 uh, in a place called Supper Cove 
We know from there that the moose stuck around for a couple of decades at least. Mm. So we know that moose were there for a significant period of time. Um, It's from about 1952 or so. Probably the best evidence we have since then is video footage taken in 1995, which was taken from a trail camera by, by Ken Tustin, who has been pursuing the moose for a very long time. And it's very blurry, as all those videos tend to be. Mm. Lots of hunters have found areas of bush that have been chewed out and there have been sort of, you know, bedding found on the ground in the shape of a moose. There have been a lot of sightings, but there's been no smoking gun. You're a great believer, though. You believe that the moose are out there. I, I do acknowledge that it's very hard to say if they are still there as we speak. What, what I do feel comfortable saying is that the moose survived a lot longer than we initially thought, well into the 90s, potentially into the 2000s. But there is a significant pushback against the idea that the moose are still out there deep in the fjordland bush. This isn't an open and shut case, is it? No, no, absolutely not. Um, and I think that's what makes it so interesting, the fact that it isn't open and shut. And, you know, we can all have the same uh, evidential basis and we can look at it differently and come to different conclusions. There are parts of Fjordland uh, where, where no human has ever been before. Who knows what could be there? Um, so things like feces, uh, things like hair, it doesn't stick around for very long. One of the wettest places on Earth, that part of Fjordland. So it's very difficult to find any evidence. But also, we do have these scraps of evidence that do point towards something. You're talking about small scraps of evidence that you're extrapolating out to build a case. You're also one of our best writers on the rise of conspiracy theories in New Zealand. Is it lost on you that some of what you're doing here could be interpreted as conspiracy theory adjacent? Um, I am aware of that, yes. Um, What I would say is that this is... It's very distinct from a conspiracy theory, purely in the sense that there's no conspiracy being alleged. You know, there's like no shadowy force hiding the truth or or suppressing the evidence or anything like that, which is sort of the motivating force behind people like Billy TK. This is more in the realm of just a classic mystery. And I think, you know, there's, there's historical reasons to believe that we could find the moose. I mean, not far from where the moose is. We found Takahe. Uh, for a long time, it was assumed that Takahe were extinct, and now we have Takahe again. So it is something that happens. Are some of the same cognitive biases at play here? You know, you're grasping at evidence that reaffirms your pre-existing worldview, the moose are out there. Are you ignoring contrary evidence when it comes to moose? Is there this kind of desire within you to piece together the evidence to fit a preordained conclusion? What got me into the story was this sort of belief that I had that the moose was just sort of like the Bigfoot or the Yeti or something. Um, I think that's the place it has occupied in our national view of it. Even um, down to the fact that the footage is grainy and, you know, it's quite hard to make out what the what the figures in it are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is um, very much along those lines. So, so that sort of was my general view of it. It wasn't until I... Um, had another look at it, I realised that there is more of an evidential basis than it's been given credit for. What amount of time have you spent pitching moose stories to your bosses at Stuff? Quite a lot, I would say. Um, it, it is, uh, I am, you know, theoretically at least a serious journalist. When I go on another moose tirade, it, it, can, it can sort of damage my credibility somewhat, and I understand that. Um, but I also think it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Like recently, there's been a lot of interest in big cats in Canterbury. Um, 
always a, a lot of interest from readers. Um, so I think the idea that there are these mysteries around us and we don't quite understand everything about the landscape that we live in, I think that's appealing in some ways. So I try to pitch it like that. Do these stories get clicked on? Are people interested? Yes, I, th- I think people are very interested. Um, we often have reports of sightings of the moose that get published. There's one fairly recently. Um, and they always do well. Um, and not necessarily in a clickbaity sort of way. Um, there's perhaps some element of that. But, but, but I think people are legitimately interested in this. And it sort of makes sense that, that people are interested. And in, in when we do the reporting and present it, uh, people and, indulge the mystery. Honestly, I think that's the most likely outcome that we will just never know if there are still moose there or when the moose officially died out. I, I, it's a frustrating thing, but I just think that's the most likely outcome. You know, it turns out that the moose isn't there. That's fine. So be it. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever know either way. Now, you have expressed some sort of journalistic circumspection. You say it's likely that you won't find moose. Do you admit, really... If you take off that journalist's hat and get into your emotional hat, do you admit that sometimes you do hope and dream that you will find the evidence of a moose, that you will uncover a moose out in Fjordland? Absolutely, yes. Um, when I take off my serious journalist hat and push on my, um, my antlers, I, I firmly believe finding the moose would be significant. And vindication. Because, yeah, I think it would be. Um, there are parts of this country, parts of this landscape that, that still have surprises for us. Um, but, I mean, in terms of what Billy TK believes, and I've interrogated his beliefs extensively, a lot of it is in defiance of, of established evidence and the scientific consensus. Belief in the moose doesn't quite rate amongst that. Perhaps the moose is a gateway um, to some of those beliefs. There are, there maybe there are QAnon supporters who started out as, as Fjordland moose heads and now they're um, posting about the fraudulent election or whatever. Who knows? But I, I, I highly doubt that anyone would go from a, a fairly innocent belief in a mystery for which there is really no contrary evidence available to something that's sinister. Uh, I think that's unlikely. Thank you so much for joining me, Charlie Mitchell. That's all right. Thanks for having me. Stuff journalist Charlie Mitchell, whose fact-based work as the publisher's specialist correspondent on the environment is much respected and admired, but who, as we heard there, can't also resist reporting on reports of mysterious animals whose existence can't actually be confirmed. And there he was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then we're back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.